Hello, you're listening to Art Blog Radio. My name is Jessica Rizzo, and I'm here with playwright Kate Tarker at the Wilma Theater in Philadelphia, where her new play, Dionysus, was such a nice man, will have its world premiere running from April 23rd to May 12th. Uh, hi, Kate. Hello, Jessica. Thanks for being here today. Very happy to be here. Uh, so my first question is about your title, which is very interesting. Um, it instantly situates us in a world where there's an operating classical mytholo- mythological frame of reference, but at the same time, it's very contemporary, even casual or laid back in tone. Uh, do you think that's an accurate description of the world of this play? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the play is looking at some of the origins of theater and the origins of tragedy as we understand it and talk about it in the theater and then applying it to very contemporary lives and it's it's sort of examining the way we've inherited tropes and ways of thinking about gender and tragedy from millennia ago and how those still are rippling through yeah all of our experiences Um, You also have a wonderful epigraph that readers of the script will get to enjoy that I wanted to share with our listeners. Uh, It reads in its entirety, life is a party, don't puke. Uh, Could you tell me how this, uh, I'll call it a poem, captures the spirit of the play for you? Yeah, um, poem is very generous, but I'll take it. (laughs) Um, It's, yeah, for me, I I wrote it in there as just sort of a a guideline for myself to, to stick to what was what is really what I'm really interested in and what's important to me here, which is sort of looking at looking at too much fun. When does fun become tragic? When what's the line? Um, when does pleasure spill into something else? And when does one person's pleasure spill into someone else's pain? Um, so there's a lot of celebrating and partying. The whole play is kind of. Well, not the whole play, but the whole first act is a party followed by preparing for another party. There's a real um, spirit of celebrating life that then turns dark at unexpected times. Uh, Without giving away anything that you don't want to give away, uh, could you tell me in your own words what happens in the play? Yes. So the play is about (laughs) the family that adopted Oedipus. Excuse me. plays about the family that adopted Oedipus when he was a baby, the family of shepherds. He's playing with the actual Greek mythology that we have handed down. Um, the, the Greek, or the classical version that we have is that he, he was adopted by uh, a king and a queen, but in my version, that's a lie, and Oedipus is a great big liar, and he comes from much humbler stock, so it's about reinvention, self-reinvention in the face of a very difficult, troubled childhood. Um, uh, one description of the play is a comedy about your childhood being a Greek tragedy. Uh, is this a play a tragedy or a comedy, do you think, or perhaps a tragic comedy? Yeah, it's both. I mean, it's a comedy about tragedy. It's also sort of a tragedy about comedy. I think those are both more accurate descriptions than tragic comedy, which makes it seem like things just blend into each other. But I am very interested in, um, well, interested in, in humor and thinking about humor, which a lot of female writers and comedians are right now in, in a way. Uh, I feel like this play is sort of a part of a tradition of women being the arbiters of funny or not. 
and looking at the line between humor and predation and, um, you know, sort of historically women have been assigned to the role of laugher and it's been our job to listen to a joke told by a dude and say if it's funny or not by laughing. But what I'm doing as a writer is both telling the jokes and finding places in the script to say, this is funny or this is not funny, this is appropriate, this is not appropriate, and to have a deeper conversation around that. Um, so according to Freud, everyone's childhood is in a sense a Greek tragedy or modeled on a Greek tragedy. Um, would you agree with that statement? Is there something universal about the fantasy that one is adopted, this ambivalence towards one's parents? Yeah, I mean... Probably. I'm not really a Freudian. I'm more of a Jungian. So I, yeah, I can't give you amazing psychoanalysis about it. But I, my childhood was definitely a Greek tragedy. Was your childhood a Greek tragedy? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I assume it's true for most people. And definitely the play is, it's about tragedy as this force that can course through anyone's life at any unexpected moment and how, how we handle that. Uh, this this strange force that visits us and can leave again. Um, in in the theater, tragedy is supposed to be about uh, evoking pity and fear. Um, I think that people might say that uh, understanding one's childhood as a tragedy is uh, is a self pitying move. Do you do you think there's something that's maybe more uh, useful or interesting about this framework for you? Oh, that's that's funny. Yeah. Well, actually. Um, <clears throat> this play is obsessed with self-pity. Excuse me. This, there's a central patriarch character, Polybus, who is just a paragon of self-pity and um, flings himself about in the play. And he he ultimately is more resigned to his fate in a way that kind of determines his fate. The, so, sort of the self-pitying character is the one who fares the worst in the play. And then we have another character, Merope, who has sort of a blind optimism, but because it's not grounded in reality, she also fares poorly. And then we have another character, who Elsinoe, who's a victim in the first act, but in the second act finds real strength and works to move past it. And we don't know what her ultimate fate is past the end of the play, but she... She brings real resilience and strength and genuine attempts at avoiding self-pity to her experiences, and so she has the most hope of actually overcoming. Um, yeah, I, I was really interested in the character of Elsinoe um, and in what I think is a, a wonderful and, and pretty unexpected move. In your second act, you have her emerging as a really forceful protagonist. Um, your play, uh, Thunderbodies, which premiered at Soho Rep in New York last year, also features a powerful female protagonist, uh, Grotilda, uh, who you've described as um, an endless fountain of rage, um, which I love. Uh, I think that could arguably be applied to Elsinoe as well. Uh, so I wanted to ask, what about female characters who are endless fountains of rage uh, appeals to you? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, clearly I need a vehicle for my feelings, um, but also... Yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to sell those characters short. Well, Grotilda truly, truly does inhabit that throughout the entirety of a play, but Elsinoe actually inhabits two poles of female experience that I'm very interested in, which are sort of vulnerable innocence and completely empowered rage. 
and I think part of what I'm trying to do is express express and empower the full range of experience by creating female characters who exist at opposite poles of that. That's great. Um, much of the play focuses on the bad behavior of powerful people, uh, largely powerful men, uh, on justice and on accountability. Uh, so whatever was it about our moment in history that made you want to write a play oriented around these themes right now? Yeah, gosh, I don't know what's going on in this moment. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this has been labeled a Me Too play, which is not wrong, but I mean, I'm, I just am of my moment. Um, I wrote it before we had the hashtag, but obviously I was part of something that was already bubbling up. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was trying to process some of my own personal experiences in writing this. Um, I I was angry. I was so angry at... Uh, various, we had we'd had some really high-profile rape cases in the news that I found quite upsetting, and yeah, I just felt a real need to reckon with that. But I also felt a need to write about the male characters with depth and compassion, and to find what's lovable about them. So it's really not a play with villains and victims. It's a play that looks at um, how painful it is to love someone who has done you wrong. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about uh, your writing process. Uh, is this the first time that you've written a play borrowing characters and scenarios from the Greeks? So you have these things that you were interested in. I'm wondering if um, you began with those um, themes that you wanted to explore, uh, and then you brought in the classical characters, or did you begin by saying, I want to rewrite Oedipus? Well, what's great about the borrowing that I've done is that most of the characters are just footnotes in mythology. <laughs> They're not, they don't really exist as fleshed out characters that we that have been handed down. Um, Oedipus is the exception to that, but it was also fun to take a character who has been conceived in a certain way and have the gall to say, no, 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 he's completely different from that. Mm. Everything you know is lies. Mm. Um, but yeah, I I don't, I, I mean, I'll definitely, I think I'm sort of a weaver as a writer. I'll take strands of different things and kind of collage them into a new character. And I think I've done the same thing with, with my so-called Greek characters here. Um, Polybus, the, the, central patriarch of the play is actually, he's a combination of Polybus, who we don't know a ton about, as well as Pablo Picasso, and Selenius, who was a drunken companion and tutor of Dionysus. Um, those are the three fibers that I've woven together in creating him. Um, we don't have... Uh we don't have uh, as many tragedies about uh, women or with women as the protagonists. We have tragedies featuring male protagonists. Um, and I wanted to ask you about why you thought that was. Um, do you think that there's something gendered about tragedy as a genre? Is it biased towards depictions of what um, what some have called uh, the titanically striving individual's man? And uh, is it less appropriate for representing the struggles of women whose experiences of the world might be more relational, more 
uh, communitarian or passive, or is that kind of a hopelessly old-fashioned way of looking at things? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's such a, you know, most of literature that we have and celebrate from our history just it is from the male point of view, right? That's just the point of view we've been living with forever. So um, inevitably, there's a, there's a male slant to it, and especially you know, especially the ancient Greek tragedies. Um, I think. I do think there's something interesting when, if you look at TV, stepping away from theater for a moment, uh, there's been this huge blossoming of half-hour dramedies Mm -hmm. with female protagonists and often female writers, and male TV has more skewed more towards this expression of hour-long anti-hero male tragic figures, Mm -hmm. which yeah, so I mean I think that's an interesting way that maybe that split is still manifesting itself now. I think there's something about female writers, because we're outsiders in a way to this tradition, right? Um, it's not ours. We can we can steal from it and rework it and borrow from it if we want. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not necessarily our tradition. I think we have, there's like a, a greater willingness to mess around with genre, right? Like genres are just habits to me. Mm-hmm. They're not things that I feel like I must be absolutely beholden to or um, grovel in front of. And I think that the half-hour dramedy, female dramedy, really displays that too, where women are really willing to play with form and toe the line between whether, you know, whether something's funny or tragic or, you know, some something else even. Mm-hmm. Right, so as uh, if we as women are outsiders to begin with... Um, there's less attachment to um, respecting the divisions between genre as something sort of sacrosanct and yeah, inherently that's what valuable. I think. That's what I think. Yeah. Um, so I know that you, uh, speaking of comedy, I know that you have studied uh, clowning uh, with the great Chris Bays and perhaps others. Uh, I think you do an extraordinary job in this play and in other plays you've written uh, using clowning and humor to address what could be very painful themes. Uh, what have you learned from uh, studying clown yourself, uh, and how uh, does that manifest in your writing? Yeah, oh man, I feel like everything I write is impacted <laughs> by that. It was pretty formative for me. I studied it in grad school, and in, I'm, I'm always a little hesitant to talk about clown because there are so many ideas about what that is, many of which have nothing to do with what I really studied. But the clown, clowning as it was taught to me by Chris Bays is... It's ultimately not not so much about the red nose or the costume, what, not, neither of which I use in my work, but it's about finding this um, really raw emotional truth and uh, being really playful and expressive and embodied with emotions. So you go to a pure state of anger and a pure state of despair and you really let those you you unleash the floodgates in a way that you don't in more naturalistic acting and I love that I love that so much and I love the playfulness of that and I love I love the vulnerability of it it's it's a moment where we really get to see the real you and the child you kind of shining through. Um, some of the best 
clown work is totally nonverbal? Do you feel like uh, there are times when words just get in the way? I mean, how do you think about this problem as a playwright? Yeah, I think about it a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm really, right now I'm really trying to think about the the, for the very beginning of the first act of this play because it is, there, there are a lot of words in it right now, but it's a party and I'm hoping that once we get into rehearsal, we'll be able to strip away a lot of the words and just rely on people being really dumb and genuinely having a good time in front of you to convey party because everyone knows everyone everyone can tell when actors are just pretending to have a good time on stage. Uh, yes, um, and as our listeners may or may not know, the Wilma has something very rare in the American Regional Theater. Uh, your own uh, resident company of actors here who train as an ensemble together, the Hot House Company. Uh, so I wanted to ask what you're looking forward to about working with this company, and it was commissioned specifically for, for this group, yes, correct? Yes, yes, it was. So did knowing who you were writing for change your writing? What's that process been like? I know you yes. haven't started rehearsals yet. Yes, well, yes, but we've done, I've been working with the actors pretty closely, and we've done, a, we did a week-long workshop a year ago, and we also did two readings on Hot House Mondays, which is when the whole company gets together. And, yeah, I definitely was excited about writing this play for the Wilma, because the Wilma is kind of a house of tragedy, <laughs> and... They do this really intense, intense warm-up um, that I don't even know how to describe to you. It's truly bizarre and alien, but it involves this this heavy breathing, this sort of like, <sighs> the tragic breath, and and I temperamentally my my worldview is comedic. It just is. So it was exciting to me to come to this company and take this take this group that is so steeped in tragedy and mess around with it and see what happens. Uh, well, I can't wait to see what happens myself. Yes, um, please come. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to like to share with our listeners that I didn't ask about? Uh, I'm so excited to see you at the theater. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for your time today, Kate. Um, I also want to let our listeners know that on April 18th, Kate Tarker will be appearing on a panel with a number of artists and scholars to have what's sure to be a fascinating discussion about her play and some of its avant-garde influences. Uh, that will be at the Kislak Library at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, once again on April 18th. Uh, more details about that will be made available soon. And be sure to get your tickets for Dionysus was Such a Nice Man at the Wilma Theater April 23rd through May 12th. Uh, I'm Jessica Rizzo. Thank you for listening to Art Blog Radio.